Every decent human being longs for peace and harmony all over the world. And people have always wanted that. Listen to the, uh, the words of Prince Albert opening the great Crystal Palace exhibition of 1851. He said this, Nobody who's paid any attention to our present era will doubt for a moment that we are living at a period of most wonderful transition which moves rapidly to accomplish that great end to which indeed all history points, the realisation of the unity of mankind. Can you hear it? Prince Albert saying we're heading towards the unity of mankind. World peace is within our grasp. But what happened 50 years later? World War I. The, the war to end all wars, we were told. Except it wasn't. As we discovered when the catastrophe of the Second World War gripped the planet. But even then, some dared to believe that a brighter future lay ahead. Winston Churchill said these words, If we can stand up to Hitler, all Europe may be free and the life of the world may move forward into broad sunlit uplands. Well, they did rid Europe of Hitler and we thank God that they did, but the broad sunlit uplands have been darkened again and again by the monsters that rule this world. See, we long for unity and harmony and world peace and yet it seems so elusive. John Lennon imagined it as he sung, Imagine there's no countries, it isn't hard to do, nothing to kill or die for, no religion to. Imagine all the people living life in peace. You may say that I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. Imagine no possessions, I wonder if you can, no need for greed or hunger, a brotherhood of man. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. Do you see statesmen, politicians, pop icons and ordinary people like you and me long for world harmony, but it is beyond our grasp. Just read your newspapers and turn on the television news. Barely a week goes by without more bloodshed. This week, the cold-blooded murder of eight students at a Jerusalem Jewish college by a Palestinian gunman has thrown the already fragile Middle East peace process into turmoil again. Unity, harmony and peace seem to be an impossible dream today. As it was in Ezekiel's time, too. And do you remember, Jerusalem, in Ezekiel's day, had been destroyed the great city was in tatters. Many Israelites were in exile, having been carted off by the Babylonians. And that is why the second half of Ezekiel 37 is so utterly spectacular. Not that it looks very impressive at first. Now look with me at verse 15 of Ezekiel 37. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, take a stick of wood and write on it, belonging to Judah and the Israelites associated with him, then take another stick of wood and write on it Ephraim's stick belonging to Joseph and all the house of Israel associated with him. Join them together into one stick so that they'll become one in your hand. Doesn't look very spectacular, does it? Especially after last week. Last week we saw Ezekiel in a valley of bones, a valley of thousands upon thousands of human remains, a valley of death full of dead dry skeletons and as Ezekiel preached to the bones they came together and tendons and flesh appeared on them and skin covered them and the Lord breathed life into them and they came alive 
Here, in the first half of chapter 37, was the promise of resurrection. The promise of being raised out of our graves on the last day. Can you imagine it? Look, as you leave tonight, look at the graves in the churchyard and imagine it. The graves opening and the decayed bodies of those long dead being reconstituted. Bones coming together, tendons and flesh and skin covering the bones and then a pulse, blood, blood pumping through their bodies and breath coming from their mouths. That was the first half of Ezekiel chapter 37. A more spectacular and inspiring vision you could not hope for. And so from that great vision we turn to verses 15 to 17. And we see Ezekiel pick up two sticks. One with Judah written on it and the other with Ephraim written on it and he joined them together in his hand. He's just done this thing with these skeletons, these bones, this army of, re- of bones coming together and then he does this. <laughs> from the sublime to the ridiculous. Ezekiel goes from the truly spectacular to the downright ordinary. A pair of sticks. I think when I read this this week, after the astonishing events of the first half of the chapter, I felt like saying to Ezekiel, if the stick thing is your encore, you really should have stopped at the bones, Ezekiel. And my guess is that we may well be tempted to think the same, not only when we look at the, the, the stick thing, but also when we consider what the stick thing means. The message of the stick thing. It appears very unspectacular after talking about resurrection. We've just talked about bones coming to life and graves opening and the dead being raised to immortality. And Ezekiel's next great oracle is about, wait for it, it's about unity. Look at verse 18. When your countrymen ask you, won't you tell us what you mean by this, say to them, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I'm going to take the stick of Joseph, which is Ephraim's hand, and of the Israelite tribes associated with him, and join it to Judah's stick, making them a single stick of wood, and they will become one in my hand. I love verse 18. I think it's a moment of real comedy. Ezekiel goes into the city centre. He puts the two sticks together and the Lord expects Ezekiel's contemporaries to ask him what it's all about. Ezekiel, what are you telling us? That stick routine, you know, we really love that. You know, what can it mean, Ezekiel? If you or I did not, uh, uh, did not guess, I, 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 you know, I think it, you, you and I would have seen Ezekiel doing that and think just walked away wouldn't we but no Ezekiel is a prophet and things he's done already have come true he proclaimed judgment on the city and the city had fallen so when Ezekiel did this stick thing I reckon they would have asked what the sticks meant well look what the Lord says verse 20 Hold before their eyes the sticks you've written on and say to them, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I will take the Israelites out of the nations where they've gone, I will gather them from all around and bring them back into their own land, I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, there will be one king over them, over all of them, and they will never again be two nations or be divided into two kingdoms. Now look, you see, hang, hang on with me at the moment. If you think the stick illustration is a bit of a disappointment after the raising of an army of skeletons, you're sure to think the meaning of it is disappointing too. 
The stick thing is all about the Lord bringing two nations together and making them one. It's all about unity. If you're interested in these sorts of things, the Hebrew word for one occurs 11 times in this section. Verse 22, the Lord will create one nation under one king. Verse 24, this king will rule as one shepherd. It doesn't sound very spectacular until we stop and think about it. Imagine bringing unity, harmony and peace to our world. Imagine all people sharing all the world. Imagine a brotherhood of man. Imagine all people living life in peace. Now to bring about that would be a truly remarkably powerful thing, wouldn't it? Because we can't do it. Oh, we've just been praying about it. We can't do it in Israel or in Iraq or in Afghanistan or Zimbabwe. We can't do it today. John Lennon couldn't motivate us to do it 30 years ago. Winston Churchill couldn't inspire us to do it 60 years ago. Prince Albert couldn't encourage us to do it 150 years ago. And when Ezekiel wrote, unity had been absent for decades in Israel too. The promise here that God would bring together Ephraim and Judah and make them one. The 12 tribes of Israel reunited It's a spectacular promise. Ephraim was the the 11 tribes, the the northern tribes living in Samaria, the tribes known as Israel. And Judah, the the one tribe that inhabited Jerusalem. Once upon a time, they had been the 12 tribes of Israel. Now they were two nations. And these two nations had been at odds with each other for centuries Again, if you're interested in these things, the split occurred under the reign of King Rehoboam just after the death of King Solomon and you can read all about it in 1 Kings chapter 12. From that moment on, Israel was divided. Eleven tribes followed Jeroboam and the one tribe of Judah remained under the rule of Rehoboam. And ever since that split, they had been at war with each other. They had formed alliances with the superpowers of the day in order to defeat the other. They felt betrayed by each other. They didn't trust each other. At best, there was tension between them. Usually, they hated each other. Now, just imagine bringing two nations like that together so that they completely trusted each other, so that they lived in harmony with each other, so that they actually loved each other. That's spectacular. Imagine Jew and Palestinian living like that today. Hutu and Tutsi, Serb and Croat, Catholic and Protestant, Kurd, Sunni and Shiite. You know, you could go on and on. Imagine these sorts of tribes, these factions, not just putting up with each other, not just tolerating the other in a nearby neighbourhood with a huge wall separating them and keeping the peace, but actually living together, loving, really loving each other together. That's the size of the promise here. Now you see, when you say it's about unity, it sounds kind of bland, but you see, it's no disappointment at all, not even after the spectacular of the resurrection of the bones. This is remarkable. For our world is totally unable to do that. No matter what we do, we cannot find this kind of harmony. Now, you, and, you, you may be tempted to say, no, Paul, you, Paul, you're overstating that. The world is able to bring peace. Think of the work of the United Nations. Think of the relative success in the former Yugoslavia. 
Or more recently, as we've just been praying, those great pictures of Kofi Annan in Kenya watching over the signing of the the two-party coalition between Mwai Kibaki and and Rayla Odinga. Well, yes, that was a great moment. And we thank God for the work of the United Nations. But listen, what we have here in Ezekiel 37 goes way beyond that. See, verse 22 The Lord promises, I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. There will be one king over them and they will never again be two nations or be divided into two kingdoms. This is an everlasting unity and not only will it last forever, look at the depth of unity. Verse 24, my servant David will be king over them and they will have one shepherd. They will follow my laws and be careful to keep my decrees. That's amazing. What will it mean to follow his laws and be careful to keep his decrees? Would well, you remember how the Lord Jesus summed up the law? To love God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and to love your neighbour as yourself. That's the depth of it. The world can't do that, to love everyone else as yourself. The United Nations, terrific job that they do. They can't bring people to love each other in genuine, heartfelt unity. No one can change hearts so that everyone will put others first, so that everyone will love others. I mean, really love them. See, just think about it. How do we bring peace in this world? Faced with a war zone, the UN sends in a peacekeeping force. It's interesting, isn't it? How do we bring peace? We use force. It's the same in Britain. We rely on the police force to keep law and order. We need force to keep the peace. Here in Britain, in what is a stable and relatively peaceful nation, we cannot do verse 22. We cannot unite people under one king or queen. It's one of the very pressing issues that the government is grappling with right now. Politicians have recognised the problems and challenges of living in a multicultural Britain and they can't solve the problems and they never will. No matter what we do, we cannot bring people from different cultures to live together in an integrated and truly united kingdom. Again, think of all manner of stories that have been in the news. This week, the... uh, the RAF personnel who've been encouraged not to wear their uniforms in Peterborough after being verbally abused in the city. That itself shows a problem of disunity. But what really interested me this week was the comment of a local Peterborough resident that really brought the issue home to me. He said this, Let's not say that the general public are doing this. We know that this is racially motivated. Let's name those who are doing it. Everyone knows there are areas of Peterborough, as there are in every city in Britain, areas that are no-go areas for anyone of a different race. You see, the point is this. Even in a nation like ours, a nation at peace, we cannot bring about this kind of peace and unity that Ezekiel 37 is talking about, where people actually love each other, not just tolerate each other. We can't even create a society where people are prepared to tolerate others, it seems. The best we can do is is keep people apart in their ghettos. Well, never mind at an international or national level, at a personal level, it is impossible to bring this kind of unity. One of the most distressing parts of my job is, is when I'm asked to conduct funerals where families are at each other's throats. 
Oh, there are extreme examples of families almost ending up hitting each other at funerals. That has happened. But the extremes apart, there are plenty of other examples where I'm told not to mention this or that at the funeral for fear of upsetting somebody or other in the family. Well, you can't do it families. No hope, is there? It is impossible for the world to bring human beings together in unity because we are sinful people. Before I leave this point, listen to how the book of Romans describes men and women, you and me. There's no need to churn it up, but I'm going to quote a few words from Romans chapter 1, verses 29 to 31. Those verses describe us as full of greed, envy, strife, deceit, malice, as gossip, slanderers, insolent, arrogant, boastful, heartless, ruthless. Now, when I give it out like a list like that, you say again, that's an exaggeration. You start breaking it down and you'll realise that sort of stuff is going on in our hearts, all of us, all the time. And it is that sort of stuff that causes disunity. It's in all of us. My little boy said to me the other day, my friend said, I don't like you and I don't want to be your friend. Four and five-year-olds can be heartless, can't they? Oh, that was said to him. He'll say it to others as well. I'm not saying he's the, you know, he's the perfect little boy. I was speaking to a teenager, asking him about his future plans, and he said, I'm going to do this and no one's going to stop me. Impressed by the ambition, or would it result in damaging ruthlessness? Look, I could spend all night giving examples of these things. These things destroy unity, greed, envy, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slander, Insolence, arrogance, boasting, heartlessness, ruthlessness. And that's the diagnosis of your heart and mine. Because we live in a fallen world, we cannot have unity in our world. Not real unity, not genuine love between people of different backgrounds and different ethnic persuasions and different cultures and different ages. So do you see, to bring a diverse and mixed people together to love each other would be truly spectacular. If someone could do this, it would be a miracle. And that's what this is all about. And so do you see, Ezekiel's sick thing, it's right up there with raising dead skeletons, actually. This is a promise that Israel and Judah will live in love and harmony. And notice where that will happen, end of verse 21 and into verse 22, when they are brought back into the land. And we considered briefly last week, the promised land is always pointing us towards eternity and the new heavens and the new earth. So no, this is not a promise of world peace in this tottering world. Christian, do not pray for world peace. Jesus has already told us that will never happen. This is the promise of a new creation, a creation that God will usher in one day when he wraps up history as we know it and creates this new heavens and new earth. That's where we'll fully know this unity that he's speaking of. And you see, as I speak of it, don't you long for that world? It is a world that we all want. Because all decent human beings want peace and harmony and unity. We long for it because we were made for it. 
Well, question, how does the Lord bring it about? Well, it's going to be a final day, but how is it that he can get us, sinful human beings, into that place and it still remain a good place? Well, he's going to change the heart of men and women. On that final day, we will be changed in an instant, in the twinkling of an eye, we'll be changed and made perfect so that we don't have all this other stuff in our lives anymore. And as we close, look at all that the Lord will do for his people because it is so spectacular and wonderful and refreshing when we're in a world that is so ugly and disunified. Look, firstly, he will give us a hatred of idols, verse 23. This is what he'll do on the final day. They will no longer defile themselves with their idols and vile images or with any of their offences, for I'll save them from all their backsliding. If you've been here since we started this series or seen most of it, uh, you'll know that throughout this book, idolatry has been the downfall of Israel. And here we see that idolatry is so abhorrent, so abhorrent that the Lord uses some of the strongest language he could possibly use. It doesn't come out in our translation. But by putting the words in verse 23, idols and vile images together in this verse, the Lord creates about as much disdain and revulsion as you could possibly imagine. An accurate translation would be to call these idols a pellet of dung. Now that would be technically accurate, but it's not strong enough to get the real meaning. Hold on to the idea of a pellet of dung, but think more earthy language, more colloquial. The idea is that when you look at somebody and you say, I think you're a lump of... I can't bring myself to say the word, so I'll say a lump of poo, shall I? That's about as far... It's far too polite, but it's as far as I can go as a Christian minister in a pulpit. But I want you, I can't believe I'm saying this, I want you to think of a ruder word. (laughs) The sort of word you don't expect to read in the Bible. And then when you read verse 23, it reads, they will no longer defile themselves with their lumps of... Okay, now get rid of that word. You've got the point. Idolatry is that bad. Not only because idols take us away from the Lord, but because idols cause disunity and disharmony. You see, idols don't have the capacity to satisfy. And they certainly don't have the capacity to satisfy everyone. Think of the idol of success. Often we try to work out that idol in our career. The bare fact is, not everyone can have the top job, can they? Everybody can't be the managing director. Or the vicar. (laughs) So do you see, chasing after the idols of success or career, somebody's going to get upset. (laughs) No, seriously, you see the point. It causes disunity and disharmony if everybody wants the top job. If you want success, not everybody can have it. If that is your idol... Somebody's going to get upset and when people are upset, so disunity happens. Take the idol of materialism. Not everyone can have everything. But the only way materialism works is when there is more to have and when we see others who've got what we want. That's the way materialism works. So materialism creates envy and greed and causes disunity. Dissatisfaction. That's why the Lord so detests idols. 
pushes him out, but it also ruins our lives. And so he will give us a new heart And verse 23, we will on that final day no longer defile ourselves with our idols and vile images or without any of our offences. That's why the new creation will be so wonderful. Do you want to be there? He'll give us a hatred of idols. Secondly, he'll give us a love of Jesus and his law. Verse 24, my servant David will be king over them and they will have one shepherd. They will follow my laws and be careful to keep my decrees. One shepherd. You see, unity comes in Christ. One shepherd leading us. Not competing ideologies and leaders, but following one shepherd. And unity comes as we keep the good shepherd's law. Because his law fosters love. We've already thought about it. Jesus' summary of the law is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and to love your neighbour as yourself. We are made to be lovers. To love God and to love others. That's what we're made to be. And when we do that, life is good. Do you know those times when you've got up in the morning and you've actually thought of other people for once? You've actually put others first. And it might have been hard work helping them out, but at the end of the day, isn't it wonderful and satisfying? Yes, it is, because you're made to be a lover. You're made to love others. The world tells you to love yourself. Learn to love yourself, to look after yourself. It all sounds so good. It actually ruins life, promotes selfishness, wrecks relationships, brings disunity. If I'm looking after me, I won't be thinking about you. And so do you see, on the final day, the Lord will give us a new heart, and verse 24 his servant David will be king over us and we will have one shepherd and we will follow his laws and be careful to keep his decrees. That's why the new creation will be so wonderful. Don't you want to be there? He'll give us a hatred of idols there. He'll give us a love of Jesus and his law. Thirdly, he'll give us the promised land. Look at verse 25. Then they will live in the land I gave to my servant Jacob, the land where your fathers lived, they and their children and their children's children will live there forever and David, my servant, will be their prince forever. So much war and disunity in this world is generated over land. People striving for things they cannot have. Whole nations demanding land that others already occupy. But in the new creation, we will be in the promised land. We will have our heavenly inheritance. We won't be at odds with others because we'll want for nothing. We'll have everything we ever wanted. That's why the new creation will be so wonderful. Don't you want to be there? He'll give us a hatred of idols. He'll give us a love of Jesus and his law. He'll give us the promised land. And fourthly and probably most importantly, he'll give us his presence. That's what verses 26 and 27 are about. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant. I will establish them and increase their numbers and I will put my sanctuary among them forever, his presence. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Knowing the Lord's presence and being in his presence will be heaven because that's what I'm made for. Have you noticed how how young children worry about virtually nothing when they are with mummy and daddy. Because when mummy and daddy are there, everything's okay. That's how young children are. When my children are with us, they're okay, basically. 
Oh, you know, I know they have their little bit. But basically, they're all right. Being in the presence of our Heavenly Father will give us perfect security. We're with Daddy. Everything's okay. And you see, being secure promotes unity. If I'm secure, I can live with others all right. That's why the new creation will be so wonderful. And that, it's that new creation that we will hear about next week for it. It's what chapters 40 to 48 of Ezekiel is all about. Andrew's going to tell us all about that next week. I can't wait. For now, do you see what a powerful thing it would be to usher in a new world order of complete peace, harmony and unity? Do you see how it would take all the power of Almighty God to do that because we can't do it? The stick thing is remarkably powerful. And so, verse 28, then the nations will know that I, the Lord, make Israel holy when my sanctuary is among them forever. Oh, yeah. When that happens, everybody will know the Lord is God. Unity declares to the world that the Lord is very powerful indeed because we can't see it or get it anywhere else. So what does this mean for us? Well, just as we saw last week that the beginning of life, of the bringing of life uh, uh, to dry bones was a picture of the final resurrection, but that it begins now in bringing life, new spiritual life to people, so the same is this. Uh, final total unity amongst people of all nations will happen in eternity. But it should begin now in the church as a demonstration of God's power at work. Just flip over to Ephesians chapter 2, if you will, and we'll see that very clearly as we close. Ephesians chapter 2, page 1174. It's really what the whole book of of Ephesians is about. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. You see, in Christ we have unity. Ephesians 2, verse 14. For he, Christ himself, is our peace, who's made the two one, that is Jew and Gentiles, people who could never get on together, made the two one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. We put walls up all over the place in order to create peace. Jesus brings walls down and creates peace. Dividing the wall of hostility, verse 15, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. It sounds like Ezekiel's sick thing, doesn't it? And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. See, Jesus begins something that he will bring to completion on the final day in the church. The future unity should be seen amongst us today as a demonstration of God's power, as his Holy Spirit begins to make us the people we should be. Which is why, if you look over to chapter 4, Paul writes this in verse 2. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. 
So do you see what all this is saying? Yeah, look forward to the great unity that you'll have on the final day. Look forward to that. That's what Ezekiel's saying. It's going to happen. It's fantastic. But now, work hard at unity. We must pray for unity. We must sort out our differences if we have them. We must have a church family which reflects this unity, not a homogenous unit, which is why this is so fantastic, but a varied, mixed, assorted gathering of all ages and social backgrounds. A community of ethnic diversity and different cultures. That's really what we ought to be aiming for. A family which loves each other by putting others before ourselves. A church family which gives the world a little glimpse of the eternal unity and harmony which the Lord God Almighty will bring about one day. But it will take all the power of God to do that then and to do it now. This is no small thing. This is as powerful as raising an army of dead bones into into an army. Well, it's a great desire. Do you have a thirst for it? Do you say it's impossible to do it now? Well, if you do, have a look at chapter 3, verse 20 of Ephesians. Is it impossible? Well, what does Paul say? He is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. Let's pray together. Well, let me leave a little moment of silence. It might be that you want to ask God to forgive you where you've caused disunity. It might be that you want to uh, ask him to give you the strength to patch things up with someone. It might be that you want him simply to give you more a vision of the future unity that is ours. In a moment of silence, do you make your own response to the living God?